Hey folks, and welcome back. On today's show, I talk with two representatives from United Church Homes, a faith-based organization that owns and operates senior living facilities in 14 states, including here in Ohio. I talk with Reverend Beth Longhiggins, who's executive director, and Dan Fagan, director of population health, about a new United Church Health initiative that I thought was pretty interesting, the Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging. The Parker Center is a virtual center they've established and which is headquartered here in Ohio to help people understand and prepare for aging, as well as to combat loneliness, isolation, but also to improve the quality of folks' lives as they age more generally. We talk about ways in which the center hopes to support Ohio's aging population through times of increased isolation, navigate misinformation about vaccines, and other important themes that arise within the context of senior living and aging. I thought it was a pretty good conversation. As always, before turning to our guests, I'd like to remind you to share your ideas for show themes and interviews by emailing us at prognosisohio at gmail.com. Also, check out our website at prognosisohio.com, where you can listen to previous episodes and find out how you can subscribe to the show, as well as support it through Patreon for just $3 a month. Reverend Beth Long Higgins joined the United Church Homes Board of Directors in 2007 while serving as co-pastor of David's United Church of Christ in Canal Winchester, Ohio. In 2013, she joined the staff at United Church Homes and in 2017 was named as the founding executive director of the organization's Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging. Dan Fagan is Director of Population Health at United Church Homes, where he's responsible for developing service coordination programs for UCH communities. Fagan has years of experience in social service, housing with supportive services, and healthcare operations. As Population Health Director at UCH, Dan is tasked with implementing programs that focus on key social determinants of health to improve healthcare outcomes and quality of life for residents and older adults in the greater community. Reverend Beth Long Higgins and Dan Fagan from United Church Homes, thanks so much for joining us on the show. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so I want to jump uh, in here. You know, we've talked a good deal about aging on this show, uh, certainly during the last 10 months with the COVID pandemic. It's been an issue in the news a lot. Uh, we did do an episode a, a little bit ago, um, focused mainly on aging in place in that conversation, but your organization, as I understand it, um, has a pretty unique model and um, you know a pretty unique set of priorities. So I, I guess I want to start with the the big picture for our listeners, and you know, if you could t- talk a little bit about um, you know the the philosophy of United Church Homes before we get to the Ruth Frost Parker Center, talk a little bit about you know just the organization itself to orient us a little. Yeah, so United Church Homes is 104 years old, um, started in Toledo, Ohio and moved by 1920 to a farmhouse in Upper Sandusky. We call it Fairhaven. And it originally was started by the pastors of German Reformed congregations who recognized that in the early part of the last century, during a world war, following and in the midst of a pandemic, that there were no safety nets for older adults. And um, what was really needed for individuals was a place to live. And so we started out in in really housing, providing uh, space for those who are most vulnerable to be able to thrive through the rest of their years. And I'm, I'm curious to, to Dan, uh, you know, you're, so I think I understand we're going to talk about the Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging in a moment, but 
Dan Fagan, you're a director of population health. It strikes me, I mean, I'm not an expert in this field, but it strikes me that that might be an unusual uh, title that not every organization has a director of population health. And I know a lot of listeners on this show will be interested in that. So can you tell us a little bit about what you bring to that, that the health piece that you, you, you provide? Yes. Um, I, I- Real excited to join our organization as the director of population health, and so as as Beth talked about, you know, from our beginning over a hundred years ago, um, we we provide healthcare and in, in healthcare communities, continuing life care communities, independent living communities, affordable housing for seniors. So across all of those settings, um, you know, this is this is where I get to spend and think about um, how we can. Um, provide services and supports to the folks that we we do serve, the older adults that we serve. So um, one of the things I'm doing in this role is in our affordable housing portfolio across the country, we're, we're serving about 3,000 older adults that live in those affordable housing communities. And we have a role called a service coordinator, which I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about. And uh, those are folks that are really focused on the social determinants of health that um, our older adults are, are experiencing, right? And trying to make sure that they're being linked with resources and, and being made, make connections in the community to make sure that people can be supported at home and, and really be healthy and, and optimize the health of the folks we serve. So that's part of what I'm doing with the organization is, is making sure that we are uh, really expanding and optimizing all of the work that happens in those communities, that we're developing partnerships that really help us uh, reach those goals of, of, of keeping people most healthy. So um, I'll stop there if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. And I, I did want to, I mean, I wanted to come back to Beth because I know we kind of took a little detour there, you know, and I know since 1916, so I was looking on your website and you've moved from uh, quote unquote, a home for the aged to a home for abundant living. So I mean, as a person who studies and thinks about and talks about health a lot, that's a really meaningful shift. And obviously how we treat all sorts of populations hopefully has changed over the last 100 years a lot, whether we're talking about addiction and mental health or we're talking about older folks. Can you talk a little bit about you know this idea of abundant living and this journey since 1916 that your organization has been on to rethink how you operate and what you're focused on? Yeah, so our organization followed the trends in some many ways over the course of the past hundred years um, that were happening throughout the rest of the country. So, you know, we started out with providing a home and we added health care, we added a hospital wing, we started expanding and building other communities, we have skilled nursing, um, then we had... Um, Full CCRCs is what they used to be called, are now called life plan communities. Um, and in the 1980s, we added the affordable housing that Dan was talking about. Um, and through all of this, and, and particularly an emphasis now in the 21st century, you, you had mentioned that you had done a podcast previously on aging in place. We believe that everybody ages no matter what place they choose to call home. And that everybody needs to have the opportunity in whatever place that is to live to their fullest, that their life should have meaning and purpose and that the quality of their life, um, we're talking about physical, uh, mental, spiritual, um, social health, um, all has the supports and the possibility to be the fullest that it can be. When people turn 65, it's not downhill until death. 
We've added 30 to 40 years to the lifespan in the past century, and we as a culture still have not quite figured out how to tell the narrative and the possibilities of what all can happen in those 30 to 40 years. It's interesting, you know, I bet, so I just turned 44 the other day. Um, happy birthday to me. Happy and, birthday. <laughs> and, and I noticed on your website, because I've been thinking about, you know, every time you have a birthday, at least in your 40s, I'm discovering, you do think about aging more and more. And also in, in the 40s, there start to be more tests and more screenings and more things. And certainly by 50s, you know, that that uh, really hits a, a kind of like regularity. On your website, you talk a little bit about not only thinking about aging as something that happens to older adults, but, you know, that your organization wants to start talking and thinking about aging earlier, you know, with, with groups that are, you know, maybe not thinking in those ways. I think that's really interesting because that also bridges a divide of helping to better understand and develop empathy for people who are older and aging. Um, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that piece of kind of deconstructing how we have thought about aging to think about it in new ways and kind of how your organization does that. Yeah. So our culture, our culture's narrative has been that it's a really positive thing to age up until about the age 18 or maybe 25. Um, And, and so everything is focused, has been focused um, with this myth that we're all supposed to remain in our late twenties or early thirties. And that, that has shifted a little bit. It was even earlier than that. Um, But to the detriment then of developing this very ageist attitude about what happens then in the last third of life. And as I mentioned, since we've added the possibility of these 30 to 40 years, um, that shifts, that shifts how we think about the entire lifespan. So your children, um, as you were talking earlier, you have a son in kindergarten, he needs to be thinking now about the possibility that he will be living to be 80 or 90 years old. Uh, even though I had great grandparents who were in their late 80s, my great oldest relative was 92, my great grandmother when she died. I kind of grew up with the expectation that maybe in the 70s was as good as it was going to get. So if, you're, if you think about the expanse of time, that's going to affect all the other decisions and possibilities that happen throughout the rest of the lifespan. And, and we need to be teaching our children that we all are aging and that aging does not have to be a negative um, thing. You talked about your 44th birthday, Dan, and, and my condolences to you. And the reason is that the research um, shows in the happiness curve that across, and this has been done multiple times in the U.S., but also across cultures, um, when they ask adults throughout the lifespan to quantify how happy they are, the lowest, uh, most unhappy period of time is between 46 and 49 years old. So I'm sorry, you're still, you still haven't bottomed out. Um, but from, from, from 50 on, people genuinely keep reporting that they are happier than they were the year before. They are happier the year before. And there are all kinds of hypotheses and research to take a look at why that is. Um, but that is not the general picture that we lift up in this culture of older adulthood being actually a very happy time. Yeah. And of course, you know, we've just been through a moment with COVID and 
perhaps are still in a moment with COVID. And I, I, obviously, we have to talk about this a little bit <laughs> in this in this moment, where there were some conversations that were clearly ageist, that were clearly, you know, accepting that those vulnerable populations, whether they be in you know whatever you call the facility, a nursing facility, assisted living, whatever you know, or the homes that you work with. Um, that they were being devalued, that they were being left vulnerable, not prioritized. Now, actually, Governor DeWine here in Ohio is is taking the lead, and is we're one of the states that put those facilities uh, for the vaccines kind of on, on on the priority list. Not every state has done that, but I do think it's just a general devaluing. Uh, but I w- I just want to ask you directly. So this uh, this idea of abundant living, and this is for Dan or Beth. Uh, what is abundant living? And is, is this a faith-based term? Is this a term that's well-known or is this a coinage of United Church Homes uh, specifically? I'll start and then Dan, you can fill in. Um, so it is rooted in um, that we are a faith-inspired organization, um, but it has to do with, with fullness. It has to do with um, expansive um, thinking it has to do with increasing um, and in- increasing in happiness, for instance, as well as a deepening understanding of life. And I would add that um, in the work that we're doing with older adults and in, in independent living communities, for example, we 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 work to really empower the folks that we do provide services to as much as possible to be involved in decision making. We, we've trained a lot of our staff in motivational interviewing to make sure that folks are actually participating in the decisions around healthcare and other life decisions that get made. You know, I think the other way this gets operationalized is that we look to the older adults that we provide services to as, as contributors, right? I mean, they have a lot to offer each other in their communities, a lot to offer the communities within which they live and where the building or facility or whatever you want to call it, we call it community. We're very purposeful about that, calling the places that we provide housing and supports community. And so I think it grows from there. Um, I think that we also are embracing lifelong learning that is uh, that there's always the opportunity to learn, to share with each other what you know, to learn from others and, and, and to continue to en- en- enrich enrich yourself. So let's turn specifically to the Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging. Um, and, you know, uh, it's a really innovative model and I read, I did as much reading as I could about it, but I guess I would just like to ask you, and I'll turn to Beth since you you run the place or you're the director of the the this initiative. Um, you know what's unique about it? What 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 does it do? And and maybe if 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 you can tell us a little bit about who Ruth Frost Parker was. Ruth Frost Parker was a member of the board of directors of United Church Homes in the 1980s and early 1990s, and um, was the largest contributor in the history of the organization. Um, And she passed away in 2016, the year of our centennial. And that was the year that we kind of initiated the center. And and so it was named in her honor for that reason. And what's unusual is that this organization, which is dealing with healthcare, which provides housing, has this initiative, which is focused 
to help support those endeavors, but it's also focused outward. As I said earlier, we are all aging in whatever place we are choosing to live. And so I have the opportunity to partner with um, congregations, educational institutions, um, other community partners to help engage in these conversations to uh, overcome ageism, to talk about what does it mean to age, and to share the resources that, that we know about because we work and, and live in this sector with the larger population who may not know what a village is um, in the village concept or who may not know about some of the innovative programs, um, music and memory or OMA, for instance, or some of the programs that we use with United Church Homes. And many of those things are applicable for folks who are living on their own or maybe living with family. And, and so how do we help share those resources with the larger population? So let's turn to some of the, the substantive issues that also, you know, really shape, I think, and again, I'm not an expert in the field, but I know that, you know, I mean, loneliness, isolation, depression, um, often undiagnosed and often just kind of assumed, I think, and that's part of the ageism, you know, when people are older, they, um, you know, they lose their spouses, they're living alone for the first time, you know, it makes a lot of sense that they're lonely. And, and I think that only over the last couple decades, you know, ha have we come to, to decide that this is unacceptable, that there are things we can do about this. You know, I work with medical students and they often ask me about, the, the way we we handle aging, we read Being Mortal, for example, uh, in medical schools by Atul Gawande, Dr. Gawande, and it's a classic because it's sort of challenging the way we've even thought about dying, but living, dying, aging, all of those things are wrapped up in it. So I, I guess I, I just, I'm curious, you know, when, when you think about the, for lack of a better word, industry that you're working in, um, I mean, there's been a lot of bad stuff uh, historically, right? There's been abuse, there's been a lack of oversight, um, a lot of uh, profit incentives that seem to have opened up some bad doors. <laughs> and, you know, I think some of that has come a long way. But how do you, you know, address things like the model of, of, of paying for all of this and providing high, high quality services? I mean, do you think that it's just about having a, a kind of holistic philosophy in place where you really care about it? Um, is it about bringing in enough money from the outside to make sure that you can actually provide high quality services? How, how do you deal with that kind of reputational part that we've been through, which is, as you mentioned, kind of related to stigma and related to ageism and those kinds of forces? Yeah. Well, there's a lot there. <laughs> Take what you like. <laughs> yeah. So, so first, let me just begin by defining the word ageism. Um, and this is one of the things that um, leading voices around the country say, whenever we use that term, we should define it. Ageism is any time that we make assumptions about a person based on how old we think they are and what they should be doing at that age. So ageism happens across the lifespan. Um, I experienced ageism significantly when I was in my 20s because genetically I look much younger than I am. Um, so it's not ageism isn't something that we just experience in once we've had five, six, seven, eight decades of experience behind us. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, yes, there are a lot of 
uh, negative stereotypes that some of which are grounded in um, people being in this sector who have not had the best interests of older adults at heart. And we have to deal with that ongoing um, image that people have forever. <laughs> um, I can tell you also, you, you mentioned um, abuse. I can tell you that more abuse happens at the hands of loved ones for older adults than in our institutions, in our communities, and across our, our, in our sector, our industry, as you called it. Um, and so that's, that's, that's a myth. And it's a really good point, and I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I think, like, I, I wanted to include that in there. I think it's just the vulnerability of the population sometimes, and just the need for being ethical in, in in the way we work with that population of people. Exactly, and um, elder justice would be a whole other topic for a whole other podcast, which is really important because most people have not been trained to know what to look for and what the signs are. Um, and in, but at the heart of, of all of the negative stereotypes that you talked about, at the heart of people taking advantage of their loved ones, um, is this devaluing of an older adult based on the myths that we carry um, and that are fed to us all the time. You know, have you, have you played uh, video games and a commercial comes up, you know, the little things that interrupt your game, you have to wait for them to go by. And, and there's several of them that say, um, neurolog leading neurologists say you should play this game. And it starts out, your brain is 90 years old. And then as the automation goes and more things are answered, that you know, your, the age of your brain supposedly comes down. That is rooted in a very ageist understanding that devalues someone's intellectual capacities at the age of 90 as compared to 25 or 40. Um, yes, we think differently as we age, but there are actually some pretty amazing um, benefits to the way a 90-year-old thinks as opposed to the way a 25-year-old or a 44-year-old thinks. Um, so having to fight against, against these images in the larger culture um, is, is an ongoing battle. And fortunately, there are more and more people joining forces and, and adding to the research and the conversation to overcome it. As, as a matter of fact, um, just last year, the Parker Center um, has published, it's on our website, a resource called Another Day Older. And it's four converse, it's the, the resource provides the background for four conversations for small groups of people to begin to explore what is ageism and what does this mean and how do I see it around me. It's video based so you don't have to know anything about the topic. The videos provide all that information for you. When we did the beta testing of it in June, I did it by Zoom for in the middle of a pandemic. And as 19 people aging in range from 15 years old to 89 years old um, is another illustration of this is a lifelong conversation that we need to have. And, and it was interesting for those who were in their teens and their 20s to see what they actually had in common with those who are in their late 70s and 80s. Um, so there are a lot of resources like that um, and, and a growing pool of resources to help with these conversations in the larger culture. 
I do want to give Dan a, a chance to respond to my uh, heart, you know, my long wandering question of with uh, multiple threads. If you have anything you'd like to add, sure, I would. Um, a couple of thoughts, Dan. Um, you know, anybody that there, there's a growing, as we all know, a growing number of older adults, right? As we're as the baby boomers are, are becoming, uh, you know, reaching sixty five and older, and and just you know, it's I've even heard it called the tsunami of older adults. That uh, you know, by there's often by twenty thirty, by twenty fifty, the numbers of us that will be older adults, including myself, um, you know, are, is growing. So anybody that's um, you know, wanting to create a product or get in the market, you know, there's certainly a growing market there, right? And I say I see a lot of people paying attention to how could we uh, provide a service or a solution for older adults. You know, I think that we have a responsibility to understand what people want and need as they continue to age in place. I think our organization is is really wrapping ourselves around that. Um, we provide really high quality. Um, healthcare settings, right? In our long-term care settings, the skilled nursing that we provide, um, you know, there are many older adults that, that aren't coming to those communities, right? I mean, the folks that are now in assisted living, maybe 15, 20 years ago would be the folks that were in nursing homes, right? And then folks that are living independently oftentimes might have been what folks in assisted living would have looked like, right? But they're continuing to live at home with supports, hopefully. And so, what we're doing as we move forward in our plan, our strategic plan and our growth plan is to create communities where we're providing services that are really individualized to what an older adult wants and needs. And again, as we talked about abundant living and the abundant communities that we want to create, that's going to be really kind of woven throughout our entire environment. So, um, that's one way, one part of what I wanted to say about your five-part question, Dan. Um, you know, and the other is, um, you know, as, as Beth said, um, so much more um, maltreatment or abuse potentially is happening at the hands of a loved one. Um, you know, there's lots of oversights in our in our environments and long-term care. Um, you know, um, the complaints can be made. People will come and investigate those from public agencies. Um, there's an ombudsman program where anybody that feels like they're rights are not um, being upheld, that they can contact the, we, uh, we educate residents on, on those processes uh, and make sure that they're, they're knowledgeable about that. So That's great. No, I really appreciate you talking directly about that. I think it's something we've, you know, talked around for a long time and, um, you know, much to the detriment of the people that we're trying to serve. I do have to ask you though. So you know, uh, and again, when I w- when I give presentations to the students I work with, they're ac- absolutely shocked that in the, in the United States we don't have long term care. Really, right? We like you know, the you, know, you either pay out of pocket or we have Medicaid. Um, and and I just wonder about your organization and how you think about class, how how you think about serving people who may not have the means to afford the services how you relate to the financial burdens of being able to access care like the center, like the Ruth Frost Parker Center or other homes and how United Church Homes may think about this question as well. So we, in our um, life plan communities where we do have health care, if somebody has lived in those communities for two years or more, and if they come to a point where they have outlived their resources and not because they had previously given them to a loved one um, or 
abused the system. Um, we have benevolent care, and we we receive funds through Medicare, uh, Medicaid, and whatever is the the difference between those reimbursements and the actual cost of care. We just take care of that through our benevolent care fund. So that's one of the ways we do that. The other the other way is as as Dan was talking about earlier, there is not one fix for all, um, and we all have different needs, and we all could have different financial capabilities, as you were referring to, Dan. So the affordable housing communities are a program through HUD. Um, and we are able to meet really the most vulnerable, the needs of the most vulnerable older adults. Uh, we also are expanding our uh, communities in what, what is called the middle market. So these are individuals who don't want to or don't have the resources to move into a full retirement community. But when they move into one of our communities, they will have access to social interactions. They will have access to uh, service coordination, um, and they will pay for what they need um, when they need it. There are much larger issues in, in the larger conversation that get at part of what you're talking about in terms of who pays for when you do need to have long-term care. Um, and those are conversations that we're very much a part of, um, but those are com advocacy conversations that need to involve public policy, laws, um, insurance, and, and having all of those players as a part of that, that larger conversation. I'm curious if I could, if I could just ask you, um, do you have a snapshot on the conversations that are going on around the vaccine discussion now? I mean, is this something that the people within your communities are, are excited about? Are you experiencing what many people are experiencing, which is kind of a little bit of trepidation in some ways? Uh, we've talked about the vaccine quite a bit on this show. Um, I wonder if, if if you have a snapshot you can offer for listeners. Yeah, I actually just look, asked for those numbers this morning. So, um in the state of Ohio, 61% of the nursing homes have received the vaccine, at least the first, at least the first dose. And our communities are following the statistics across the state. But 40% of our staff have, are, have been vaccinated and 75 to 80% of the residents. And I, I asked someone um, who works in one of our communities this morning, I said, do you why Why are some of the residents not receiving the vaccine? And she said, predominantly, the residents are very excited. They're like, yes, I want this vaccine. I want to see my grandchildren. I want to see my kids. Um, and the few people that she knew in her community, residents who did not receive the vaccine, did not receive it because the power of attorney or medical power attorney for them who uh, makes those decisions declined to have them receive the shot. So we, we are finding that we're, we're following the trends within the state of Ohio. That's quite a, I don't know what the right word I'm looking for is, but something, an unintended consequence of power of attorney, perhaps. I mean, something I wouldn't have thought about, but makes a ton of sense that, um, you know, you assume 
that everybody has the best interests in mind of others, especially when they're empowered in that way. And I'm not saying they don't, but it certainly makes the narrative a bit more complicated other than just people who could get the vaccine saying yes or no. There's another layer there. Well, and I think it's also related to, you know, the fact that only 40% of staff are taking the vaccine themselves. There's still such a significant amount of um, distrust and wariness and misinformation. And um, I know that our staff has taken advantage of the multitude of resources that have been provided through the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, through the CDC, through Leading Age, which is the National Association um, for Nonprofit Organizations like ourselves. And even with the plethora of information, um, it, that's still a significantly low number. Yeah. So you have a lot of work to do just in, on the communication side, educating your residents and, and, and um, internally, I would guess. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, uh, to to wrap up, I, I just wanted to give both of you a chance to talk a little bit about specifically the Ruth Frost Parker Center, um, and just you know, what what are you most excited about with it? What what do you think people should know? Um, especially, not just that they need to know about this center in Marion, Ohio, but um, in terms of how it's pushing the conversation and and what are you what are you most excited about that could actually change the model if if everybody was to have such a place if everybody was to do uh, to follow the lead um the the center really is the website and anywhere that myself or someone else on behalf of the center is is speaking or engaged um so it's not a bricks and, and mortar center at all um, I, let me just tell you about a couple of um, events that we are involved in. We have an annual symposium, and we just had our fifth one this past fall. And some of the speakers that we bring in for the symposium um, included Joan London was the first speaker. Um, and some of you may remember Joan um, from her time at Good Morning America. She really is, uh, considers herself to be a health journalist and has been very involved because of her own experience with her mother um, in understanding all of the issues that we've been talking about. So she was the inaugural speaker. Dr. Laura Karstensen, the director of the Center of Longevity from Stanford University, spoke the second year talking about aging and this addition of these three decades of life. We've also had uh, Dr. Ira Bayak, who is... Um, really been very instrumental in talking about palliative care in this country. Um, our fourth speaker was uh, Joe Coughlin, who's the director of MIT's Age Lab, and we were talking about technology and, and how that is providing abundant life for people who are in the later third of their life. And this past um, fall, we were centered on the topic of loneliness and isolation. And so in addition to having uh, uh, Robin Golden from Rush University in Chicago uh, talking about these issues, we, we brought in Stu Maddox and Joe Applebaum, who are um, filmmakers, documentary filmmakers, who are finishing a film called All the Lonely People, which it really is lifting up this issue of loneliness and isolation. 
and we were the first to see scenes um, from that documentary. So we bring national speakers into Central Ohio and then have conversations, um, and we bring in folks from Central Ohio to see how these intersect with, with what the speakers are talking about as well. So that's our annual symposium. This next year, it's going to be held at the end of August, and we're, the topic that we're going to be taking a look at is the intersection of race and age, because there are all kinds of disparities related to abundant life and aging based on a person's um, race and the um, supports and services, the social determinants of health that have been available to them throughout their entire life. And we want to take a look at that, the significance of that a little bit more. Uh, the second um, major initiative is um, we just completed the second Hori LGBT Horizons of Aging Summit. Um, the LGBT community um, is a community that most people don't think about the fact that there are people who are aging who identify within that community and that provides some pretty unique challenges and opportunities and and so we've now had two of these summits this last one was completely virtual um, again bringing in a variety of, of speakers and then the 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 next conference that's coming up, which will again be completely virtual, is taking a look at um, dementia and providing education and opportunity for clergy and lay leaders who have older adults in their congregations. Um, what do congregations need to know about dementia and how do you include people in, in the life of your congregation who are experiencing this progressive disease? Or condition and, and how do we also support the caregivers, their family members who are living with them. I can tell you that the presentations from this last year's symposium and this past uh, Horizons of Aging Summit for the LGBT community, those sessions are all located on our website and you can access and, and view them um, from AbundantAging.org. Great. And you know, we'll link to those and put them out on social media as well. I have to note also, I asked a five-part question before. That was quite a long answer, but that's because you're doing so much. And it's quite, it's amazing. There's a, there's a lot of moving parts. And just when you think about the different issues, when you think about racial disparity, when you think about um, you know LGBTQ issues, when you think about dementia, um, and th those are just three of dozens, um, there, there's so much work to do. Um, I just want to ask Dan if he wanted to add anything um, as we wrap up. Well, Beth, that description was fantastic. I, I think um, the audience of the the Ruth Frost Parker Center, um, you know, it's it it touches so many folks potentially, right? The, the folks in academia, folks that are community leaders, folks that are practitioners and providers, older adults themselves and their caregivers. I think that there is really vital and important information that gets presented through the center. And I, that's what I wanted to add to, to what I think is the, the value, the, um, the significance of, of what, what's happening in the center. It, it's, it's for a wide 
range of audiences um, is what I wanted to add. So. Well, we talked about talking for about 20 minutes. We did double that. I apologize for taking too much of your time. No, no. But as I said, there's a lot to talk about. And I, I think, um, Beth, even you, you flagged two possible other episodes of things that we should probably be talking about in the future. And I would welcome that. I think it's, it's important to just keep having these conversations. I want to thank you both for joining me and uh, sharing with our listeners. And I, I wish you well with this new initiative. And I'm glad we got to call a little bit of attention to it. Thanks, Dan. It's a privilege to be with you. Thank you, Dan. Many thanks to Reverend Long Higgins and Dan Fagan for taking time to talk with us. Prognosis Ohio is hosted by me, Dan Skinner, and produced by me and Mark France. This week, we're super excited to have extra production and social media support from Claire McGee, a fabulous senior at Ohio University who's going to be serving as a Prognosis Ohio intern throughout the semester. Claire's awesome, and you'll be hearing more from her over the next few months. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show and follow us on Twitter at at PrognosisOhio. As always, we encourage you to reach out via email or social media with your suggestions and your feedback. As I mentioned, we welcome ideas for important issues you'd like to hear us engage with on the show. Don't be shy. And finally, we'd really appreciate your support through Patreon. Okay, that's it for now. See you next time.